Hi, on this week's Be A Better Ally podcast, we have guest Maya Carey, who is going to introduce herself in just a moment. We are going to link to her organization because I guarantee after you've heard her speak just for a few minutes, you're going to be so curious to learn more about HopeWorks. Yeah. Uh, so I want to thank you so much for inviting me on to the Be A Better Ally podcast. Um, my name is Maya Carey. I use she, they pronouns, and I work at HopeWorks of Howard County, which is um, a domestic violence, intimate partner violence, and human trafficking um, resource prevention and intervention center in um, Howard County, Maryland. Um, so I am the volunteer program coordinator here at HopeWorks, and I work within the community engagement department, and we focus a lot on, um, we focus solely on doing prevention education, prevention work. Um, and so I'm really happy that you called me in to, to talk to you about this because, um, you know, this is, that's a focus of my work, and I'm always trying to think about ways that we can include prevention in everyday life, and I think having a conversation about students and teachers and how to implement, like, prevention education and prevention measures into everyday life is, is really, really important. Um, so a little bit about me, I, um, uh, I graduated from Chatham University in um, 2018, so I started uh, working at HopeWorks not uh, not too far after that. Um, I, I studied political science and women and gender studies um, and women's leadership. And so I have a lot of background um, working in like grassroots organizing and policy um, and really think it's important to engage in community building, um, especially when we think about um, gender and sexual violence. Um, the only way that we can kind of create a cultural shift is by like engaging the community directly and having conversations and um, creating a space where we're centering survivors and we're centering people of color and queer and trans folk. Um, and so that's really where my heart lies. Um, and it's, it's, it's been a passion of mine since I was in high school. A lot of the educators who make up the audience of the show, uh, their schools will have kind of a, a community service or for IB schools, they have a, a CAS program where they're hopefully experiencing firsthand, you know, grassroots, small little shifts can uh, end up making big, big change. I think that'll really mm -hmm. resonate with them. Um, that kind of, that's a great segue into my first question. Uh, I was just looking through your organization's mission statement and to quote it, not the whole thing, but just a, a piece of it back to you. It says, quote, we acknowledge that ending sexual and intimate partner violence requires structural change. Social justice makes room for change to come from those communities that are most affected by social inequity, end quote. So I know that some people will be listening and, and thinking like, yes, we want to do that. But I think sometimes those of us who work in education, um, we just haven't seen structural change. We don't know what it looks mm -hmm. like or what it sounds like. So I'm wondering if you could speak to an example of how schools can support that structural change that you hope to see. Yeah, um, so I really appreciate that because that's one of the one part of our mission that is, is relatively new. Um, you know, we do a lot of intervention work, um, you know, focusing on, on survivors in crisis. Um, and we don't necessarily think about, you know, in order to prevent survivors from being in crisis in the first place, we need to like address these social issues. And it can be really, really daunting, especially if you're just an individual and you're in a school system that doesn't necessarily like represent the same views that you have. Um, 
So I think when we look at gender and sexual violence, it's important to understand that there are cultural phenomenon and systems that um, society has put in place to perpetuate pro problematic stereotyping, um, depictions of survivors and cultures of hypermasculinity. And I think um, the way that that society kind of function functions is, you know, for children, it's not only the messages that um, they're receiving at home or from social media, but, you know, schools are a huge part of, of children's daily life. Um, so I think it's important for teachers and students to have um, frank conversations about femininity and masculinity, gender roles, um, big, and like those big picture isms like racism, homophobia, homophobia uh, misogyny, and, and also media. Um, so I think what what I want to ground our conversation in today is the importance of starting this at a young age. Um, so I know not all of the people who listen to, to this podcast are all like elementary school teachers, but, you know, um, hopefully, hopefully in school systems. And if there's, if there are schools that are like K through 12 or K through eight, you know, um, there's able to be collaboration among teachers of different grades. Um, so I think, I think it means uh, starting these conversations at a young age, talking about like bodily autonomy and consent outside of pu uh, purely sexual conversation, talking about regulating emotions and naming emotions and as not only necessary, um, necessary for girls and women, but for everyone. Um, and I think we really do a disservice to um, our girls and boys and, and children in general, regardless of their gender, by like putting them into boxes and, and expecting them to act a certain way. Um, and we, we do a lot of that forced gendering in schools um, and by making mindful decisions on how we discuss these large topics, making them digestible through conversation throughout the school year and not just doing it on like during Black History Month or Women's History Month, um, we can start to create a, a generation that prides itself on equity, inclusion, and, and humanity. Yes, I am. I am so hopeful for that. And I really, I do appreciate your point that, you know, if those conversations start earlier, we're not actually asking for such a huge, gigantic shift later on. Um, just, just recently, I was delivering a, a workshop on LGBTQ plus inclusion, and it was pre-K through 12. Um, and I often ask school leaders, you know, can we have the whole cohort together? Because it's, I think it's really important that we look at how it is a continued, it is an ongoing conversation. Um, you know, and sometimes I hear this phrase of, oh, well, you know, topics like that aren't age appropriate for younger mm -hmm. learners. Uh, and, mm -hmm. I, you know, my, my stance, I hope, obviously, is that I, I disagree with that. And I'm wondering, I'm, I'm sure that you have heard that as well. And I, I just love to kind of collect different people's responses to that, because I think that pushback around, quote unquote, age appropriateness is inevitable. It comes up all the time. Mm -hmm. So I'm just sort of wondering um, how you have addressed that when you've had that pushback of, well, you know, they're, they're too young for, the, for this conversation right now. It has to come mm -hmm. I think one way that we have addressed it, like I'll talk, I'll speak a little bit about as an agency and then personally. Um, so we do a lot of like education in the school systems. We've worked a lot, really hard to get a good rapport with the school system so that they're able to, and they feel comfortable to invite us in to have these conversations. Um, and so I think, I think we were really working towards like putting on, not only having like, workshops for teens and middle schoolers, but engaging in conversation at a young age with kids about like how they can 
like what can kids do at a, at in, in second and third grade to like prevent violence from happening in their communities so like not only understanding that like as children they have a responsibility to to be like genuine and kind and respectful of all humans regardless of if of where they come from the language that they speak the ability that they have or the gender or sexuality that they express um and i think you know we're always going to have pushbacks you know parents and, and families come from a wide variety of areas they have you know their own religious ideas they have their own cultural ideas and we can't expect every person and family to to show up the same way and i think having a conversation about you know yes we want to respect people and and value people as individuals but also giving space for that uncomfortability i think allowing parents and student uh, par uh parents and kids to like name that uncomfortability and and also be encouraged to push through it is really really important um i think you know as 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 feminists and as social justice advocates it's so easy to just push 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 with our ideas hoping that you know there'll be a drop here a drop there um, and that people will bring it back to their families and their friends um, but i think by engaging in longer term conversations and like you know naming things when they pop up and and you know you know offering offering that space for uncomfortability we can create a a, a culture where people aren't so scared to have those conversations and i think in regards to like lgbtq plus students especially trans students or gender non-conforming students um i think it's about like instilling that idea of humanity at a young age that regardless of how someone shows up, that they're a valid person and that their experience is their experience, whether you've experienced it yourself, it doesn't mean that you can judge them. Um, and so I, I, I really believe in, you know, making myself a little bit uncomfortable and, and giving space to hear other opinions, even if that's something I don't believe in, but to the point of, of creating dialogue, especially when, you know, these ideas about like about gender and sexuality and race and, and immigration status and all of that often comes from a place of fear and uh, the inability to like see different viewpoints or like the inability to even have those conversations. Um, so that's that's really where I find it to be most important because um, at the end of the day we can't we can want all we want but people are still going to show up the way that they show up um so by making a point to try not to isolate them and engage them in those hard conversations we can we can really start to move the conversation forward i really appreciate what you said about you know fear maybe being at the foundation uh you know of what makes that that conversation so difficult and i think it's really admirable you mentioned that you know you will make space to listen to people even when it, you know it, it runs so staunchly in the face of your values and i'm wondering if you might say a bit more about your strategies for doing that because you know you've said it and you make it sound like it's easy and you know mm -hmm. actually maybe it is easy for you now because you've rehearsed <laughs> But I'm wondering, like, you know, what are some of the strategies that you try to hold in mind when you know you're going into a conversation where somebody's going to say something that, you know, really, really does confront some of your core beliefs 
um, you, you know, and allows you to just sit with that, that discomfort, as you say. Mm. Yeah, and I, I don't think I've come up with a perfect formula for that. You know, I do a lot of workshops, a lot of, um, I'm about to do a 16-hour workshop this weekend um, about, about gender and sexual violence and the root causes of violence. And oftentimes conversation, like we're talking about those things that make people uncomfortable. We're talking about, about racism and we're talking about transphobia and, and these fears that elicit that continue to promote violence, regardless of if it's sexual violence or not in our society. And um, one thing that that I've really held on to is, um, is this idea of creating group agreements. Um, so whenever I go into a space, I always like to ground um, participants in a, a number of different agreements. And I've pulled some agreements from um, Adrienne Marie Brown's Emergent Strategy. Um, so she, she, even though this isn't like, we can't, we can't expect everyone to follow these rules, but if we set the guidelines and set our expectations at the get go, hopefully we can have people following that. And, and so, you know, some people might have, have, uh, an opinion about like creating a safe space. And so I always try and start with like creating an affirming space, um, affirming people's identities, affirming people's experiences, especially because there's probably most likely survivors in the room, um, you know, providing that affirmation is really key in creating trust. Um, and so, so going back to the emergent strategy um, ground rules, I, I, really, I really encourage people to like wait before they speak and think about not only what, why they're talking, but also like the effects of their of, of what they're saying on another person. Like, are they doing something just to be like a devil's advocate? Or are they actually engaging in this conversation and asking questions because they feel safe to do so? Um, and I think one thing that I've learned, um, you know, I, I, just, I just got trained as a sexuality educator um, and, and that's like having conversations about sex is even more difficult than having conversations about relationships with, with young people. And so I think really like, you know, it's, it's, it's the, it's the trouble, but between, you know, wanting to let people feel the way they feel and then also trying to like, you know, put those raindrops in that person so that they can grow into a different, into a more wholly rounded person. So I don't know if I can really answer that question. I think I'm still in the process of, of finding the groove and, and um, you know, I really, I try and stay assertive in my, in my values and like, yes, you can have your opinions, but we're not going to accept or uplift opinions that, that are harmful to other people. Um, and I think, you know, especially when talking to teachers, I mean, uh, to parents, um, you know, they want to know that, that their, their kid has the right to have their own opinion. Um, and so I think just validating that and, and also letting them know that the point of these kids going in and talking about relationships, consent, and boundaries is to make sure that they're safer in the long run, is to like ground them in the idea that that at the end of the day it's their child's well-being 
and you can't be a, a you can't be fully equipped with everything unless you are aware of differences in the world. Um, and I think I think normal to be afraid because the more you know about things, the scarier the world becomes. And you know the idea is once you become woke, like and you see these inequalities, you can't stop seeing these inequalities. And I think it's scary, but it's powerful. And I'm trying to reinforce that idea into parents and students that it's okay to it's okay to be uncomfortable. It's okay to to not know something, but um, but it's important also as a human, especially as a developing human, um, to to gather as much information as possible and then come up with your opinion afterwards. And at the end of the day, it's that's what it is, is we can't control what people, how people react to the information that we give them, but we're still giving them the information. And like, that's, that's the core of it. Absolutely. So for teachers and parents that want to offer inclusive health and relationship education, do you have advice for the ways that we might consider framing discussions about what a healthy relationship is? You know, I, I, I'm, I'm really glad to hear you say that you've also, um, you're, you're now doing sex ed. And I just, I think back, you know, I'm almost 40. So I think back to the mm -hmm. sex ed that I had when I was in school and mm -hmm. you know, how totally useless it was. And you know, now it seems crazy that we never even discuss like what's a healthy relationship dynamic like. Mm -hmm. And I'm really glad to see schools starting to kind of reframe that. But I'm wondering, you know, for, for adults that did not have that kind of sex ed experience, can you just say a little bit more about how, how you frame that and how you help students come to understand um, a healthy relationship dynamic? Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm going to continue saying this, but like starting young, I think we really do a disservice. Um, I mean, my education system, my like sex education um, curriculum did start early. It started in fifth grade, but it was never, a, we never had conversations about like bodily autonomy, about consent, about emotional intelligence. And I think, you know, we need to expand our idea of what consent looks like. And, you know, we hear all the time about, you know, like saying no and no means no and yes means yes and giving an affirmative yes, but how do we build that into our daily lives? Because we can, we have to consent to things on a regular basis. Um, so I think as parents and teachers in conversation with kids in the early stages of puberty or even in elementary school, it's important to put our own discomfort aside again um, and understand um, that sex and relationship uh, when we have conversations about sex and relationship, we need to be honest and non-judgmental and open to the reality that, um, you know, how young people are viewing relationships is most likely not in the healthiest way because we have social media, we have, we have all of the pressures from, you know, older siblings and the way that they're, they're forming their relationships, you know, they, like there's expectations that, you know, come off the bat. Um, so when we discuss relationships with teens and young people, I think it's important to start with the relationships that they idealize or view as being healthy. So when we have workshops on this, I always start with, with giving, giving them the opportunity to speak and, and break down the emotions, values, and feelings that they have around said relationships. Um, 
And that gives them the idea to think about like what they want in a relationship, whether it be platonic, romantic, sexual, or otherwise. Um, and I think addition, in addition to that, I think we need to have conversations about different type of relationships. Um, because regardless of, of if we become sexual or romantic with someone, we're still gonna have other relationships outside of those that are just as important and require just as much respect and um, boundary setting and consent. Um, I think also, you know, when we have conversations about like, about relationships, it's so easy to kind of push our own ideas on, on a child. I think keeping the conversation open and um, allowing the child to lead the conversation, giving you the reasons for why they admire certain couples or friendships is really important. And then once you have a good idea of where a child stands, you can form your conversation around that. And um, enforcing the main points that a healthy relationship, regardless of what type, should always include mutual respect. Um, so valuing um, each other um, and understanding boundaries, um, fairness and equity. So um, give and take in a relationship so that one person isn't always compromising for the happiness of the other person. And I think that goes back to our gender roles and everything. And then finally, individuality, that neither partner should have to compromise who they are um, or their identity should not be based on a partner's. Each should continue seeking um, their friends and doing the things that they love. Each should be supportive of their partner wanting to pursue new hobbies or make new friends and more. Um, you know, so laying out the groundwork of like what a healthy relationship is. And then I think, you know, what's even more important is breaking down what an unhealthy or abusive relationship looks like. Um, and, and the idea that abuse is always about power and control, and it can happen to anyone of any gender, age, sexuality, physical appearance. Um, and it's always a choice on the abuser, and it's never gonna be your fault. Um, people in abusive relationships usually get, uh, exert power and control through forms of isolation, economic control, bodily intimidation, and threats, of, threats and coercion. Um, while people in loving and healthy relationships should never feel scared of their partner hurting them, whether it be physical or emotional. Um, and I don't know if you are aware of the power and control wheel, but it's a, it's a very um, common um, resource that is used in, in gender violence prevention. And I think it's a really great way to kind of frame the understanding, the dynamics of abuse. Um, and, and also, framing the conversation and I'm not trying to scare you, but I'm trying to, I'm trying to let you know that, that what the red flags are and that, and that, you know, this idea of possession of love as, as love or, you know, like isolation as love, like wanting to spend every single moment together as love, you know, we have these preconceived notions and, mm -hmm. you know, trying to, readdress those even if we ourselves as parents and educators have not necessarily followed in on those healthy patterns you know we all have ways to move forward um but I, you know pulling ourselves out of that conversation i think is really important um and then one more thing i think it's it's important that when we do have these conversations about relationship that we intertwine it that conversation with media literacy mm -hmm. um, whether teens are spending too, so much time up their free time on platforms like Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and Snapchat, 
they're absorbing an absurd amount of information about people's lives. Um, you know, it's, it's constant. Um, and it's our jobs as parents and educators to engage um, these kids in reality and help them to understand that perception, especially when it comes to the internet or social media, isn't reality. Um, people put on a show for the world to see and, and one can't see all sides of a relationship simply from, from what is put on social media. Absolutely. Uh, you know, and I'm so glad you brought that up because, uh, you know, as you were talking about that understanding of, you know, power and control and what we, you know, the, the preconceived misconceptions that we have around what a healthy relationship or what romance or love is, um, it, it also just, it made me think a little bit about some of the, the mainstream media narratives. I'm thinking of like, Beauty and the Beast, um, mm -hmm. and I can't remember the name of the movie, but the Bradley Cooper, Lady Gaga movie that was huge. Yes, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and just how it's sort of like, that messaging is actually like terrible. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if you have any, any questions that you recommend to parents or teachers to use with their students or with their children in terms of getting them to reflect a little bit about, you know, maybe not necessarily a romantic partner, but a, a friendship that maybe has some of those unhealthy power dynamics as well. Yeah. Um, really, I think it's just about, you know, when we talk about this type of stuff in, in our health classes in ninth grade with these kids, it's, we ask them about what they see in their lives. So, you know, just asking them to be honest. And I think it's easier said than done when I'm coming in from an outside perspective. I'm not, I don't have a relationship with these students um, necessarily. I'm not their teacher. I'm not seeing these students on an everyday basis. So sometimes it's easier for them to just, you know, share with me because they know that there's not going to be a fear that I'm going to gossip with the other teachers or like pull someone aside, you know. Um, so I think that definitely plays a role into it, but, you know, just asking them to think about what they see in school, like, what, what, what are ways that, that kids are, are having these relationships? And I, I often find that, surprisingly, when they, what, what kids talk about is beyond these romantic relationships. They talk about their friendships. They talk about their parents' relationship. They talk about, you know, about their relationships with their siblings. And I think like that, that whole thing is something that we need to uplift. Um, I also think, um, you know, talking, when we talk about um, with like younger children about relationships, I think we need to ask, just simply ask them like, what does love mean to you? How do you show that you care about someone? I, I really just think it's about having those like open dialogues and and creating, you know, it's easier said than done to say like, oh, let, let's create a culture of trust, you know, that takes time. And especially when we have kids who have trauma and have experienced stuff in life, you know, which is the majority of children, it's not always easy to build that trust. If somebody is worried about a student and they think that they might be in an abusive relationship, do you have any recommendations for what their their first steps should be in that dynamic? Yeah. Um, so I've I working here, we oftentimes like my first go is to like always, always um, you know, always provide choice and and affirmation to the child. Um, 
you know, especially when we're talking about child sexual abuse, um, as parents and as, as teachers, if we're seeing something that might that might be going on, um, it's really easy to like ask leading questions mm. um, and force them to tell their story right there, right then. And you know, because we're fixers, we don't want our children to be going through pain. We don't want them to be, you know, have to go through a situation. So we want to know all the details right then and, and there. We want them to be able to explain everything and, and, and tell us what's going on. Um, but oftentimes, you know, with when, when there is abuse happening, there's so much fear that's elicited in that child, um, whether it be blame and the idea that, you know, like these parents or teachers are gonna blame me for, for what's going on or shame. Um, oftentimes abusers like, use threats and coercion to keep a child in 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 silence um and so when we do end up talking to a child i think you know not asking leading questions affirming their experience you know making sure that there is space for them to feel comfortable you know do you want to have a conversation outside do you want to take a walk um can i get you water you know like providing them choice and, and letting them know that they don't have to say anything that they don't want to, um, that you're here. Um, and, and also letting them know that as a parent and as a, as a teacher that um, it's your job and responsibility as the adult to make sure that they're safe. And, um, and that comes with having to report that um, and letting the child know all the steps that you as a as an adult are gonna take so that they're not blindsided when they get pulled into the counselor's office or the police officers show up at the door or you know something like that happens. So you know, giving all of the information, sitting there and being affirming, like letting the child speak on their own terms and at their own pace is really, really important. And I think this is really difficult. Um, it's it's not it's not something that we is like easy for all students because you know especially when that trauma is intertwined with say disability or um you know racialized trauma or um you know other things like that i think it's it's oftentimes that conversation is even more difficult um and so also thinking about like, though I am the trusted adult, am I the right person to be having the conversation with this kid? Mm. Though I care about them, um, is there someone else who they trust a little bit more or who may be able to empathize with them on a different level who could be having this conversation? You know, um, that's one thing that I think, especially as parents, um, is hard. Um, so like if there is a domestic violence rape crisis center in in um, your county like going to them asking for their advice um not just you know I, I i really just think it's about like providing choice providing option um not just making the decision for the child um so that's a little all over the place but i think those are my go-to steps and what i advise for people you know, in the, the consultation work that you do and in the workshops that you, you offer, when it comes to um, abuse in an LGBTQ plus relationship, I'm, I'm thinking about a, a book 
is called In the Dream House. It's a memoir by an author who is reflecting back on her own uh, relationship with another woman. And she talks about how she felt so much pressure initially to actually not speak out about the abuse that was going on in that dynamic. Mm -hmm. She felt like, you know, there's already people are so, um, there's so much homophobia and I don't want to kind of fuel that fire. You know, she almost felt a sense of responsibility to be like, if I'm in a queer relationship, I can only say good things about it. Mm. Um, I'm just sort of wondering anecdotally or if your organization does have any data just around whether or not it, it does go underreported and if there's mm -hmm. any specific training that you've done that would be um, interesting for, for us to learn a little bit more about. Yeah. Um... So I, I, again, like I'm working on the prevention side. I don't do much intervention. I have responded to hospital calls and I have helped um, on the helpline and stuff like that. Um, so I don't have a lot of experience working with like, ha like I don't have a lot of stories in my toolbox um, about that, but as a queer person and as someone who's been in an unhealthy relationship with another woman, um, I can I can speak to like that fear about like you know not wanting to not wanting to speak out because because there's this idea that you know I don't know where the idea what the idea is but it there's there's a different fear when you're in a queer relationship mm -hmm. um, I do know that LGBTQ plus um, people are at a higher risk of being um, uh, sexually assaulted and entering into intimate partner violence relationships specifically because of you know that internalized homophobia of people can often play out in in emotional abuse and physical abuse of their partner um, you know there's there's another trauma on top of being a queer person growing up a queer person especially if you aren't accepted in your community especially if 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 you don't have a safe person to talk to and that only person is your partner, um, there's more of a chance of being isolated and, and emotionally abused and all of that. And we do see a lot, specifically a lot of trans women and, and trans folk who come in who, um, who have been uh, abused. Um, and, and there isn't necessarily a culture where they feel safe to come out and, and speak out. And so we as an organization have a really, a really, important job to do to make people feel safe to come out and speak out. Um, and, and we do that um, specifically in community engagement by like having conversations about queerness and sexuality on everyday life. Um, just for an example, um, next year um, we are starting a project called the Prison Project and it's specifically, um, it's like a series of um, LGBTQ plus like uh, events and like workshop series and, and stuff focusing on like queer identity and specifically on survivors. Um, and so we really think that like, you know, centering those voices and, and giving space for people to share their experiences is really important. And then also like making a point to uplifting that because you're not gonna just like, just, just as the effect is on men, if you don't see yourself in the Me Too movement because it's centered around cisgender heterosexual women, then how are you going to feel safe to come out and share your experience with with the trauma of and and, and just 
the harsh realities of being queer in America and being queer in a space where you might not be accepted or it might be dangerous to be out or you might be forced into the closet or have experienced um, bullying or, and that type of stuff, you know, that, that pain is internalized. And so there's this, I think for a lot of queer people who are survivors, this, there's this idea that like, you get what you get, you know, mm. um, you get what you get because that's the love that you have. Um, and there's, especially if there, there's not a big LGBTQ plus population or like community in where you live, um, there's, there's, you don't have that support system. And so it's even more, even, I think even more than, than other people, there's this possibility for, for shame and guilt, um, because it's, it's, it's the stories aren't normalized, the stories aren't told, and mm -hmm. um, there's homophobia, tons and tons of homophobia and transphobia in the gender violence field because people still have this idea of what a, what a perfect survivor looks like. Um, and we do have this like, cultural idea that, you know, abuse looks a certain way. Um, so I, I, I really, really think that as a society we really need to like center and focus on those queer and trans voices and you know create specific community spaces for people to like talk about pain to talk about violence to talk also about joy and celebrate that when you're doing a workshop on gender-based violence or you're giving a, a sex ed workshop what does what does that look and sound like because i know again that i've seen a lot of sex ed uh, delivered and it might be delivered in a way in which it's sort of like you know there are queer people that exist none of them are mm -hmm. here but they're out there and I and I find you know sometimes that's that's been more at least the norm in my experiences when we're talking about it in a classroom it's mm -hmm. like there's no there's no, no acknowledgement that somebody in the room also might identify that way mm -hmm. uh, so I, I'm wondering what advice you might have for, for, for doing it better than that so in, in general um, I think as a queer educator and as a, as a queer person who's working with the youth, I, I have a duty to be brave enough to be out. Um, and that's, that's something that can be really scary, especially when you do know you're working in a situation where you don't know these kids and, and you know, you're trying to assert authority so that they listen to you. Um, but, you know, I think just the fact that like, I wear my gender pronoun pins on my shirt and I ask everyone to go around and share their name, pronouns, um, and you know something they love about themselves. Um, uh, and that, like, when I'm talking about gender violence, I'm not automatically using she. Um, I'm 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 using gender neutral pronouns. Um, when I'm when I use examples about when I use examples about. Um, about teen dating violence, we have this activity called in their shoes. Um, instead of instead of choosing to like only use like you know heterosexual relationships, I'm I'm not making a big deal about including queer and trans folks in that conversation. Um, I think it's really about just normalizing it, and you know it takes a lot of work. I've I've been working on this since I was in high school. You know, trying to I've you know, ahead of the game, thinking about my role in, in ending and in, in kind of destroying gender roles and stuff. But like, uh, you know, just really engaging that conversation throughout throughout the day. And, you know, if we have a question and answer session, 
sometimes if I don't see anything about trans or queer people, sometimes I'll just throw something in just to like let people know that like it's okay to ask questions about that. Mm. Um, you know, I, I think I think we really, really, really have to be mindful about about the way that we pick we kind of depict survivors. And I think, you know, we don't do a, a in society and in the gender violence prevention field, we don't do a good job about doing that for trans and 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 uh uh queer folks. We don't do a good job about doing that for um for people with disabilities. We don't do a good job at like at doing that for people who who are racialized, you know, I think in general, our society has put up an image of what a survivor looks like, of what a relationship looks like. And it's all about constantly throughout the conversation, like engaging in that and engaging in that. And I think part of it for me as an educator is being brave and being uncomfortable and, and, and putting myself into a space where like, though I personally may not want to be asked about all these questions, offering up the chance for, for people to ask me about my gender, ask about me, my sexuality, um, because you never know who's going to be in the room. And the majority of, of, of people in a room uh, might, be had, uh, might be straight, but there's also a huge probability that there's going to be a queer trans kid or five in the room as well. Right. I'm really, I'm really glad you, you mentioned that. And, um, I, you know, I, I try to include that in workshops that I deliver as well, that sometimes we have these assumptions about the identity of our students, but, you know, it's also not fixed. Um, and just making space for them to think about the way that their identity might shift in the future. So mm -hmm. um, just, just really recognizing that. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I really, I think it's it's easier said than done, but once we as educators kind of, you know, again, with these other conversations, remove our uncomfortability with that, like kids are so much more accepting than we give them credit for. You know, they are wide-eyed and, you know, their prefrontal cortexes are still developing. There's so much opportunity to form them into like accepting human beings. And, you know, as adults, sometimes we're limited because we've done that learning and, it's a lot harder to unlearn things than to learn things. So, you know, yes, getting, yeah. giving these kids the, the benefit of the doubt and like, you know, having the idea that, you know, they're probably going to get it because you're telling them and kids, kids, kids give authority to the people who are in the front of the room. And, um, and so it's our duty to, you know, not make assumptions about these kids and it's our duty to, you know, really shape the breadth of our conversation to be inclusive and you know um even sometimes more centered on other people just so that they get the idea that like that it happens to anyone to everyone absolutely so i'm wondering for our listeners who are listening to you and they're so curious about hope works and already they have a sense of how important that work is that that you do can you let them know how they might be able to make a contribution, how they can continue to follow you and learn from the work that you and HopeWorks do from afar? Yeah. Um, so um, you can make a donation to us at wearehopeworks.org slash donate. Um, wearehopeworks.org slash donate. Um, 
And um, just wanted to let everyone know that the majority of our donations do come from, uh, of, uh, of our funding do come from grants, but in, in order for us to be able to like put on these workshops and to, um, to serve our clients and provide them with childcare the way that we do, um, we do require on donations. Um, there's also the ability, um, I don't know if, if listeners are uh, aware of um, Smile Amazon, um, but if, if people wanted to create an Amazon account that is linked to a, to a charity, HopeWorks is on there. Um, it's called HopeWorks of Howard County. You can always um, link your Amazon account to our organization so that whenever you purchase something, a portion of, of, the, of what you've purchased goes to our organization. Um, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook at we are at um, HopeWorks of HC. Um, and then um, for people who are local or who, um, you know, want to contribute in a different way, um, we do have an emergency pantry. Um, and so this is a pantry that, um, that we provide access to for any and all of our clients. Um, so you can also support our clients by purchasing items for our emergency pantry. We have um, the list of needs on our website, wearehopeworks.org. You can always um, send us um, send us goods via Amazon, have it shipped to our, our office, um, or give us a financial donation. And then for people in the area, um, or I mean, for people who aren't in the area, we also um, host a podcast of our own. Um, and it's called Transforming Together, um, the HopeWorks podcast. And you can find us on Apple uh, and on Podbean. And so that's a converse, that's a podcast about, you know, not only gender violence, but about healing and about reform and justice reform and um, and about how to have these conversations with people. So it's very similar to this podcast, um, but uh, we put it on um, once a month. Uh, it's released and um, we have a lot of special guests on. We've had um, people talking about like, uh, we talked about immigration, we've talked about human trafficking, we've talked about, you know, uh, healing as a survivor, um, healing as people of color, um, and, and other stuff like that. And for people who are in the, the DMV area, the DC, Maryland, Virginia area, um, we do put on a lot of workshops. We have, um, we have some workshops coming up for survivors of child sexual abuse, um, a listening session. We have, um, we have um, some listening sessions for boys and men survivors, um, and we have um, some events coming up for youth specifically. So if you want to learn more, you can go to wearehopeworks.org slash events. Maya, thank you so much for your time today. I really enjoyed all of the resources that you shared. And of course, I'll include those in the show notes so that listeners can have uh, access to them right away. Uh, we wish you the best of luck with HopeWorks for the rest of the year. Thank you for doing the important work that you do. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. I've really enjoyed this conversation.